Carton. Blair. Buddy, episode 32. Here we go. All right. Nice. Uh, buddy, I haven't talked to you since, well, you know, a week ago. And uh, we, we, we've still been in some hot weather, you know, and let's oh, catch man. up on some things. But We've got uh, smoke rolling in. You guys have smoke? No, no. Uh, yeah. Where are the fires at? Uh, Idaho, I think we've got that the wind coming up from the south down. It's pushed a lot. Actually, Missoula is supposed to be really bad, but we're getting it now too. We woke up this morning, the sunrise was coming up and it was smoky enough to where you could like actually look at it without blinding you and it was yeah. red. It kind of cleared out through the day, but it's settling back yeah. in here tonight. So could be one of those summers, buddy. It's pretty yeah, hot, pretty dry. I think, so. I think so. Especially, you know, out west. I, I think I think it's cooled off somewhat, but uh, yeah, they've been having a tough time. So oh, for sure. Yeah, it um, definitely happened. So, buddy, what do you got? Uh, you know, we're right in the throes of summer. So what do you got going on? You know what? I've uh, been prepping all, all night tonight because we are about to take our pop-up camper for the first maiden what? voyage. Yeah, we're taking them out. We got it out. We got the kids. Everything's ready. I had to uh, fix my trailer adapter so that my lights worked so I didn't get pulled over. That was like a, a two-hour <laughs> adventure tonight just to find the right piece, but I found it. Uh, and yeah, the kids have been running around the camper. We've had it out already, and they're just absolutely uh, beyond excited. Okay, so so I don't know anything about pop-up campers. What made you decide to go with a pop-up? Well, I I did a pop-up because one, they're relatively cheap and I'm cheap. So that works, right? Okay. Two, right. I think it's like um more I mean, as far as like campers go, it's about as rustic that you can get as a camper. So mine is a mine is a Palomino, a pony palomino. And I think it's actually oh. from two thousand three. Um, okay. but the previous owner had kept it in great condition. Um, and you know, you don't have to hook up anything, right? I can hook up propane if I want to, and I can hook up water and I can hook up electricity and great. Right. But in all reality, what I can do is just set it up, pop it out. And then we've got some beds and, and then a, an enclosed space as well if we need it, but that's it. You know, it's basically just right. a fancy tent. And the nice thing too, is that they're, they're so small, they're really um, versatile. You can take it anywhere and they're really light too. So just about anything can pull it. So, yeah. um, yeah, it ends up being, you pretty much take it wherever you want in backcountry, whatever, and you can make it work. See, I, I think that's actually a really, really good idea. Um, we, <clears throat> when our kids were younger, we had a camper, we, you know, and, and si similar thing, except for we went with a, it was a, it was a bumper pull and, but a little bit bigger and stuff, but, but really we just, we kind of like to get out and, and rough it a little bit, but tent yeah. camping, I'm like, eh, you know, once I got to that point where sleeping on the hard ground, I, I woke up and I was pretty stiff. I thought, that, yeah, well, that's exactly that. how I feel. I did enough of that in the military. I don't want to be, I don't want to do it for <laughs> pleasure at this point. It's like, if I can get a bed, I'm going to do it. I've been yeah. sleeping in the sand in the hot for too long. And plus, you know, you, you got the kids. So at this, we can at least like kind of partition them off. And if we need to try to get them down you know sleep will come much easier than than putting them in a tent not to say we won't do the tent thing because we will, oh yeah but, yeah you know yeah. this will be easy to pull them out and get them ready and going um i did ask them to name it because i felt like we needed a name for it um and i think the options were beluga or princess squeak squeak so one of those two <laughs> i don't know which one i'm going with yet. because palomino wasn't wasn't original enough i'm, gonna, call, I'm gonna call it the palomino because i feel that's right uh but i think for the kids i'll refer to it as princess squeak squeak she is oh. a returning character in some of the stories that i tell them oh, at night. Nice. she's usually the damsel in distress that's being saved by some i don't know why i gravitate towards mice <laughs> in these stories but either way i do and princess squeak squeak's always in there okay so. well i think i went to a 
strip club called the Palomino one. <laughs> was Princess Creek Creek in there? <laughs> I bet she was. Actually, I think she was the main draw. I'm not I sure. believe that. Well, yeah, listen, buddy. That. Well, awesome. I, I hope you and the family have a great time. So yeah, it'll be fun. Um, okay, so summer, you know, summer's here. And but our guest tonight, Carden, um, is is somebody that uh, you know, summer's a, a pretty big deal, or maybe he used to be anymore, because I think he works all 12 months a year, you know. But mm-hmm. but he's an educator. So, you know, a lot of times they actually get the summers off. But I think those those days are long gone. But uh Chuck Gaiman is with us tonight, buddy. That's excellent. Say former hello, colleague. Chuck. Yeah, former colleague. Hi, Carden. <laughs> What's going on, Chuck? Uh not much. Yeah, we we uh, we are glad to have Chuck. Uh, I'm gonna give Chuck just a super quick intro, and then he can talk about his his uh, experience. But Chuck's been a friend. Well, actually, with you and I, Carden, but I've known Chuck for uh, what 15, 16 years, and um, he's he's an educator. He's been an educator for 31 years. This guy is no rookie. Mm. Um, he was a uh, teacher for 10 years. And then he advanced to being a principal for 15 years. And then he also uh, took the job as a principal slash superintendent um, at the high school for the last six years. So, um, yeah, he's he's been around educated for a long time. And then, Carden, you actually taught um, at the same time that he was the, the pr- principal? Superintendent. Oh, you were a superintendent? Yep, he's superintendent. Yep. For the, I think for the entire, no, 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 for the last two years. The last two years of my four years. Yep. Nice. Nice. So he was kind of your boss, actually, I guess. Yeah, he was my boss. He was. Oh, jeez. And boy, I'll tell you, talk about a... Putting the thumb down, really putting the the hammer to the nail. We're not going to air any grievances here, are we, guys? Okay. Are we, uh... No, 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 no. We'll we'll see once we get rolling. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, Chuck, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, actually, I'm I'm excited to to talk to you about some things. But first, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself and and talk a little bit about that that long uh, history in education? Okay. Well. Um, I graduated from EMC, which is now MSU Billings, in 1990. I started my teaching career in Hart Butte. I went there, um, wanted to teach in Montana, had interviewed uh, at the job fairs on, on campus in Billings, and got lots of offers from out-of-state schools. My wife had to finish college. Um, she was a year behind me, and so decided I'd... I'd stay in Montana and teach at Hart Butte. I grew up in Conrad, so not far from home for me. So I did two years in Hart Butte. Now, now, <clears throat> Chuck, tell us a little bit about Hart Butte. Well, Hart Butte is in a beautiful location. It's right on the Rocky Mountain front. I mean, in Shota, we're close, but in Hart mm-hmm. Butte, you're right on it. Yep. Um, it's on the Blackfoot Reservation. A um, lot of great memories of teaching in Hart Butte. A mm-hmm. lot of friendships. Um, I, I still keep in contact a little bit with a few people I taught with and, you know, mm-hmm. meet in passing and teacher things and things like that. But, uh, an interesting experience. I mean, it was, um, for me not experiencing a lot of cultural diversity and then teaching on, on a reservation was, uh, an experience for me. I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it isn't, you know, it, it is kind of, pretty far removed from a lot of places. I mean, it's kind of tucked up, like you say, right in the mountains. There's not a lot around it. You know, you're, you're kind of out there. No, you are fairly isolated. And actually to get to Hart Butte, you have to go to Hart Butte. I mean, you, you don't, it's not on a regular pathway. Um, so 
So anyway, I taught for two years in Hart Butte and uh, my wife moved up, moved up the second year, actually halfway through the first year. Um, student taught at Browning High School in art um, and then student, or sorry, substitute taught. Well, I taught, I taught first grade in my two years in Hart Butte and then we moved to Hamilton Taught at Washington Elementary, first grade, both in Hart Butte and in Hamilton. Hamilton was a beautiful place. Loved Hamilton, a great place to teach. I taught in a K-1 building. I think there was five first grades and five kindergartens. Mm -hmm. uh, great staff, wonderful memories, great people there. And then we moved to Great Falls, um, taught for six years there. I taught first grade there. I taught a K-1 combo. I taught second grade and taught fourth grade, all at Whittier Elementary in Great Falls. And then... While I was teaching, after eight years of teaching, eight and a half years, I started working on my master's to be a principal and uh, got that and the interviewed in Great Falls and then in Shoto and Shoto offered me a job. And so I've been here ever since. Bam. Wow. Bam. 31 years later. Yeah. What was your favorite elementary grade to teach? <clears throat> I really liked first grade, and that's why most of my experience was in first grade. Second grade was pretty fun. Um, if I had to do it now, I'd probably teach a higher grade, like fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. Mm. Uh, first grade requires a lot of energy, and um, they just they just need constant supervision and maintenance, and and uh, mm. it's it's tough. When I go into kindergarten rooms now, it's uh, it's fun to watch, but I'm glad I can leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and and Chuck, correct me if I'm wrong, but but when you were starting that, there there could not have been a lot of male elementary teachers at that time. No. When I was in Hart Butte, I was the only male in elementary. When I was in Hamilton, I was the only male in the building. When I was in Great Falls, there was another male teacher in the building, and so that's very typical. There's not a lot of men who teach elementary, especially first grade. It was kind of interesting when I was hired in Great Falls, I actually met another guy who, who turned out to become a principal as well about the same time I did. And uh, we were in trainings together and we were like the only two guys there who taught first grade. Because in Great Falls, there was enough teachers. You had first grade level meetings and second grade level meetings. Right. And so when we did the trainings and meetings and stuff, he, he and I would be the two guys there. <laughs> um, is that something that nowadays has that changed quite a bit Chuck? no no it's not changed a bit really yeah it's uh, very typical for an elementary staff to be if not a hundred percent female probably 90 percent one mm -hmm. male teacher um, when you talk about classroom teachers and even in our small school here shoto we don't have any male classroom teachers mm. in the elementary in the elementary yep is that something that you would, um, if you could change, you would advocate for? Do you find that um, having that kind of, even just a, a balance um, makes it different for the students? I I don't know if I'd advocate for it because if you, well, first of all, if you want, if you're going to teach, you have to want to teach. Yeah. Um, and, and so to to say, uh, yeah, I'd like more males in it. I mean, but it's it's like the guy's, have to want to do it. Right. And I just don't, I don't know why it is that way. Um, but it is that way. It's, a uh, in elementary, in my experience, uh, my schools I've been in, it's been, you know, dominated by females. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, so Chuck, you, um, like we said, you've taught for 31 years, right? So when you look back, Okay, and especially this last year was crazy, and we'll we'll talk about the COVID effect or the COVID impact in a little bit. But when you look back and you you kind of 
see this progression of things. Um, what do you really, what stands out to you now that has changed since when you first started? Um, well, obviously kids have changed. The demands of education have changed. I think in education now it's way more broad spectrum than academic education. The need is such for the students that we deal with trauma a lot. We deal with um, ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences. Um, we deal with social emotional issues more than we did. And that's probably the biggest change that I've noticed is that the percentage of time in a school day that is spent dealing with those kind of things that we mm -hmm. didn't. I mean, when I was a classroom teacher, I taught academic things. We did some social skill instruction and things like that, but it was fairly limited. It's not now, I mean, now you can buy a core program to use in elementary school for social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. That was unheard of when I was in the classroom, you know, 21 years ago. And so that's kind of a, a sign of the, um, the needs of the, the students mm -hmm. and what we have to do to address those needs. That's probably the biggest change I've seen is, the academic demands are still there and actually they've been ramped up even more. There's a progression mm -hmm. of learning that is required to achieve um, common core standards and standards for the students that you want that is very different. You know, well, you and I probably have similar kindergarten experiences where sure. you went for half a day, you took yep. a nap for part mm -hmm. of it. It was yep. more of a, a real informal learning. It was more of a social situation right. as opposed to an academic situation. Now, kindergarten is a very academic situation. Um, there's that expectation that kids will come out of kindergarten reading. And that yeah. when I taught, that was the priority of first grade. Kids would come in with the skills they needed to be prepared to read. Mm -hmm. And as a first grade teacher, that was a, a the, kind of the stressor on you is these kids, we got to get them reading. And now that has gone down to a kindergarten. Um, there's, there's more... Um, preparation and dialogue with like our preschool program to, to try to get as many academic things in place mm -hmm. to get students prepared for literacy and mathematics. Um, and that again has, has changed too. So the demands have changed and it trickles down to kindergarten, the, the, the start of it. You still like to have all those social and play-like play activities mm -hmm. and things like that, but there's a lot of academics. Yeah. Do you think the um, the kind of the focus, I would say, on the social uh, emotional side, do you think that that reflects kind of uh, what's happening right now in society? Or do you think that maybe, you know, 25, 30 years ago, those issues were still prevalent, but it was something that was not dealt with in the school? I think it's a combination of both. I think there's an awareness in society about the value of mental health and uh getting that help is it's not as it's not a stigma like it was 20 years ago mm -hmm. um and and so that's i think a piece of it too uh, but i think when you talk about trauma or you know experiences students have had that have been negative that um uh, i i think a lot of it can be attributed to access they have to things that they didn't in the past mm -hmm. meaning the internet oh, and those yeah. opportunities on the internet that are both positive and negative and that's got to play some role in this um as as we help students deal with social emotional issues hmm. do you <clears throat> you know hearing this chuck 
how much is too much for the teachers? Okay. So you, you said that when you started, it was, it was basically an academic oriented job. Yep. And now you're, you're being part educator, academic, mm-hmm. but there's also a, a emotional psychological component. I mean, do you, do you feel that the, this has the potential to go to expect too much of teachers? I don't know if it's too much. I, I, it's just one of those situations. It is what it is. This is the right. situation we're in. These are the needs that the kids have. We're, we've become way more aware of, of that side of things as mm-hmm. educators in, I'd say, the last five to seven years. Um, you know, in this, actually, when you started this question, Blair, I started <laughs> thinking about teachers. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the, the secondary trauma that happens when you're dealing with a child who's going through a difficult situation and the impacts on the teachers. And actually, I have a great staff and a great leadership team that, that help with this and trying to help teachers deal with this trauma that impacts them in that secondary basis mm-hmm. and the stress that's associated with it, um, the burnout, um, that it's, it's just, it's a lot. It is. I, I met um, just at a, a casual thing uh, last winter. He was a professor from back east and he was vacationing in Montana. And <clears throat> we got to talking about the COVID and the impact of COVID with education and all the online stuff. And he made, he made a remark that, that I'd never thought about. And he said, you know, uh, it's been very hard on the kids, but what people forget is it's been very hard on the educators. He said, I'm a person that took a lot of pride in teaching and how I taught. And when you're forced to try to emulate this quality education via, you know, Zoom, um, he said it was very stressful and it had that kind of a a negative impact on a lot of educators because, you know, again, everybody's focus was, oh, man, this is really hard on the kids. Um, But, you know, what about the teachers, Mm -hmm. you know, for that very reason? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a very difficult time. And I agree completely that it was, well, A, it was stressful because you put the teachers in a new situation. And so there, there has to be learning that takes place for them and then trying to teach on top of that in a, in a really unpredictable world we were in for those three months when the schools were closed down and we were remote and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, it was it was very stressful on the staff. Um, especially with them being basically frontline, right? Especially when you when you even come back thinking about their their own health. But I, I think it's really interesting the the things that you're doing with the the mental health of the teachers. Because even you know my, I, I just think it's so fascinating. The thing that I was certainly not prepared for when I stepped into the classroom for the first time was how much exactly like you said that I would be dealing with that was not academic. And so many times you make connections with students and um you you realize that you know the the underlying problems are can be directly linked to maybe you know not even getting breakfast in the morning for a freshman or you know things like that that are happening um, at home or are happening out of con- the control of the school but then essentially you're trying to figure out okay how do i you know in my standpoint how do i convince this this um, student to try to read a book when he has all this other things going on. So you take on completely a different role. Do you, do you find in the elementary side that you've, these teachers that especially are, are so invested are taking almost kind of like a, a parental role? Well, yes, they are very invested in that, uh, invested in the kids. And um, 
to say they're taking a parental role. I mean, I think every day educators take a parental role in in the child's life Um, as they try to teach them right from wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. making good decisions and all those things that, that parents do and and friends do and aunts and uncles do. And, and I think we do that too. Um, It's um, yeah. You know, there's, there's so much I want to say about this because you brought up some points that, you know, I'm going to go back to you prepared as an educator. That's how I felt when I entered my first classroom, my first year. And then every year, you know, you're, you stay in the same position, you stay in the same grade, grade level, things like that. You, you feel more comfortable. And then for me, it was two years in Hart Butte and then I was to Hamilton and there was two years in Hamilton and then to Great Falls and then Great Falls with different grade levels. You were, you know, when you come out of college, A, you're not prepared. Student teaching probably no. does more for that than any, any class or coursework that you take. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing was true when I went back and got my master's and you learn all of this stuff and, and then you dive into the principalship and it's like, you, you just continue to, it, it's like you're, um, on a boat instead of on firm ground with your, you know, your mind mm-hmm. and your thoughts and mm-hmm. you, you really question because it's, it's so unknown and you don't know. Um, and, and that only comes through experience, but you're exactly right in recognizing that, um, those basic needs of a student have to be met uh, in order for learning to happen. And that's something that we've, we've recognized. And it's one, I mean, it's a simple thing like we have snacks in the classroom for kids just right. in case they don't. We have a jar yeah. of peanut butter and bread available. Anytime a student needs food, we, we find a way to get them something to eat. We have mm-hmm. a great um, food service program or lunch program. Kathy does an amazing job in her crew and she's all on board if a, if a child needs something to eat. And I mean, it goes do they have the clothes? Do they have shoes? Do they have socks? You know, those, mm-hmm. those very basic needs, do they feel safe? And we try to create a, an environment at school to take care of those basic needs so that we can educate them. And that's, again, something that has been an evolution of education. Um, again, it, it's like the academics are there and it's, it's, again, the, there's a bigger push now than there ever has been on academics, but there's all the, this other stuff in addition to that, that you have to make sure is in place for learning to happen on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So, so Chuck, this, and I'm not trying, this isn't a loaded question, but, um, just honestly, in your opinion, uh, are the colleges, when you get fresh graduates, um, do you feel like they are, in a position, in a good position to start teaching? Do you think colleges are doing a good job in preparing? You know, because you just touched on the differences, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of other things. Now, is that addressed in college? Are, the, are they taught how to handle these non-academic instances that you're gonna, that, that are mm-hmm. gonna occur when you're working with children? You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to the last part of your question. How have the colleges changed? If they have changed to address those. Um, I can tell you that, Colleges do a good job, but it's, I mean, the book learning that you do in college is different than the learning to teach that you do while teaching. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not a knock on college, but it's just a reality. I mean, that's how I felt Mm -hmm. as a teacher after graduating, got my degree, I know everything I need to know. And then they throw you in a classroom. I mean, then uh, luckily they throw you in a classroom to student teach with a teacher. And in my case, a teacher had been a teacher for 41 years. I got to student teach with her, her last bit of teaching. Um, and, and that's what really kind of brings things together for you because, you know, learning about, uh, lesson structure is important. Mm -hmm. 
But when you, you know, writing a lesson plan is important, but until you execute those things in a classroom full of kids, and in my case, you know, yeah. 17 first graders, and you've got this great <laughs> lesson planned out with yeah. these quality yeah. learning objectives and yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. And that's really what it's about. You know, the whole psychology stuff, Piaget, all that stuff. I mean, it all plays a part in there, but it's really for the most part, um, you put it to the side as you, when you get into a classroom, you're almost in survival mode yeah. as you're reacting to situations that are so varied and unusual on a mm -hmm. daily basis yeah, that yeah. college, I mean, college just flat can't prepare you for all of those. I think the value of student teaching is tremendous. And, and my own experience, I had a practicum and then uh, student teaching and that was it. If, if there's anything I'd like to see, I'd like to see pre-service teachers in the classroom more. more. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. um, instead of paying for those credits, maybe let's pay them to do it. I mean, I always thought it was kind of ridiculous that I had to pay to student teach. I paid to, pay to work. Right. Um, but yeah. if there's something that could change there to get, get kids, those, those young kids who are coming out to be teachers, more experiences in the classroom with quality teachers, I think that would be very valuable. Yeah, I you know to, coming from that experience just recently, I cannot agree with you more. There is, I I have always thought that teaching should be an apprenticeship, and that if you want to be a teacher and you're you're progressing towards that in education, you're very you should be in a classroom right away, um, because it, typically it's your last semester. You are finally in the classroom. You're putting some classroom management things together, and I think that we had you know basically twenty plus maybe in our little cohort of, of English teachers that were moving, and I know for a fact six of them made it a week in the classroom and said, "I don't want to do this at all." <laughs> you know, this is their last semester. Um, before they graduate, getting into classroom for the first time, getting in front of yeah. students for the first time and going, That's no, amazing. this is not what I thought this was going to be like. I'm out, you know, which for that to happen the very last stage, it, it makes no sense. I mean, exactly like you said, Chuck, get the kids, get the students in the classroom right away. And they don't have to, they can learn the, the lessons and the book learning that can all come. But I mean, so much can be taught from classroom management standpoint, what the classroom actually looks like, what a lesson objective actually, what it actually looks like in practice, instead of making all of these conceptual lesson plans that you will never know if they work. And quite honestly, you either scrap or you make them go over three days or you realize, hey, this is a 50 minute lesson that just took five minutes. And now I've got a, now I've got 45 <laughs> minutes to, to try and all these kids are staring at me. You know, these things that you would never find out unless yeah. you're standing in front of the classroom. Absolutely. You know, I like the idea of the apprenticeship program. Um, do it for plumbers. It would be great if we could do it for educators uh, where we had yeah. master educators and, right. and uh, I guess, apprentice educators, wh whatever you want to call it. But I, I think that's where you learn the most. Um, you know, and the one thing that I've tried to, as an administrator, the one, the one thing I've tried to do is to help teachers grow and professionally. And that's one thing, you know, I, ha I was lucky enough to have some good principals and uh, in Hart Butte, a, a gentleman named Ellis Perry, who was a great um, resource and support for me. And, and actually, I was like your friends. Two weeks into it, I thought, what am I doing? I don't know if I can handle this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was Ellis who helped me see that. And then Diane Long at Whittier in um, Great Falls, who really encouraged me and gave me opportunities in that leadership role um, to, to grow that. To, to bring me where I am today. And so it is, um, 
that's all part of that learning experience too, um, is that administrator and, and a bigger piece to it is the collegial part to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were lucky enough to have a grade level partner uh, or our department partner in Shoto. Uh, some of our staff does not have that um, mm-hmm. in the high school, whether they're an island, basically. Uh, music is a, is a great example. We have one music teacher who does choir and band, and she's the only one in the school. We have a librarian who does that's it. She's a K-12 librarian. So there's not that, Mm. you know, that partnership. Uh, We're fortunate in the elementary school, most grade levels have a teaching partner, um, that that person who can mentor, who has maybe been there and can help you and answer questions and give you some advice and things, you know, what to do in this situation, how to help this child, (laughs) things like that. So uh, that's all part of that learning process too. Yeah, and there's so much that you can learn from from other educators. I was fortunate enough, like you said, to have somebody else, but then also just with the, the coaching aspect and other things, I was able um, to really kind of get in with some teachers that have been doing it a long time. And, you know, I was a sponge because I was, after week one, was like, I don't know anything. I need to get as much advice as I can. So I was just, you know, every single scenario that came up or anything, I was always asking questions. And and that really helped me out because honestly, I would not, uh, I wouldn't have made it that that first year. But be, between just figuring out how to interact with students for the first time over a long period of time, managing your classroom when you, you know, you basically are an island when you're in there by yourself managing the classroom. It's kind of your show. So um, without the support of everybody else, there's no way. And there's some great teachers there that really, really, really helped me out. Yeah. Well, and Cardin, you you were in a particularly tough place because I know what it's like being a young man coming into that school system when you're not much older than the high school students, you know, and there is that there's that kind of hill to climb of them respecting you as an adult versus just an older kid. You know? Yeah. And I think and, that um, I think the thing that really saved me there was that I'm a huge nerd. So they realized pretty quickly, like this guy isn't an English teacher through and through, like he loves words, <laughs> you know, and I think pretty quickly they're like, okay, this guy's a tool, but he's, you know, but you know, when I would get excited about uh, the novels and things like that and really get into it, I think the kids realize like, Hey, this guy is passionate about what he's doing and he's a total dork. So, you know, I think that that, 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 that helped me out. Yeah, exactly. Take his lunch money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so Chuck, so, um, okay. So we talked about the kids you know, in, the, in your 31 years, the, the you know, you, you, you've really identified some fantastic observations. Um, now let's talk about parents. Okay. And I, and this is not a, this is, Hey, this is not a load question either. This, I'm sure this is, you, you know, just answer it as you will, but obviously, and I, I, I've coached, so I've, I've had my share of experience with parents and working with kids, but that has to be a factor. And in 31 years, what has changed with parents? Well, I think the biggest change that you see in society is the family units are different than they used to be. I think the traditional families, um, what is a traditional family nowadays? And I don't know the percentage of divorced families as opposed to married families is. Um, the last time I heard it was about 40% of, of students w- would have a uh, be in a divorced family setting. Mm-hmm. And so family dynamics has to play a role in that. I also think that uh, when I grew up, my mom didn't work. My mom stayed at home. And, and so when I came home from school, my mom was there. And I just think the reality of uh, for a lot of families just to live, 
that both parents have to work. And so there's, there's potentially daycare if they're older, they're home alone. And, and there's just not that, <coughs> that same structure, whether good or bad. I just think it's, it's different now. Um, I think I'm, I'm fortunate. I think we are fortunate to live in Shoto where we, where it's, it's still, I don't want to say, you know, it's still rural, rural Montana. That's kind of the bottom line. And so bigger changes, um, come slower mm -hmm. in, in our, in our community. Um, still have great parents that, that work hard, supportive, do what they can. Um, even though, you know, mom and dad are both working, they do everything they can. They come to parent teacher conferences, they support their children, mm -hmm. all those kind of things. Um, but I just think the demands of society, it's different. Do you think that there is a change in the, the respect level for educators than there was 25 years ago? I think that would depend. Um, I think it depends. Well, I'll, I think it depends where you are, what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I could answer that and say, I, I mean, it's when I was a kid, if I got in trouble at school, I was in trouble at home. Mm -hmm. And, um, sometimes I don't, I don't see that in dealing with parents, but a lot of times I do. Um, I just know my own personal situation of growing up and how it was for me. So my parents supported the school in that case. Um, but I, I really don't, a lot of times I don't know how supportive parents are. I just, I don't, I mean, I see them a couple times a year, three times a year, four times a year. It just depends. I don't, I don't know. That, that's a good question to ask teachers in the classroom who yeah. kind of see that, have a little more <clears throat> firsthand knowledge than I do. And that's a, that's a tough question for you to answer. I mean, I, I can see it and I, I know that <clears throat> what we see in our society, there is, there is an unmistakable, um, what, how, uh, lack of accountability or yeah. there's getting to be less mm -hmm. accountability for, for kids. And even if it's not happening in Shota, Montana, it's, it's happening in other places that, some parents have become more demanding um, for what they expect out of educator, educators and education. And a lot of it goes back to, you know, their part in it, you know, and I've always felt, you know, as a parent, there's an obligation on our end too. You know, we, we certainly don't expect the educators to be these children's parents, you know, so we have to do our part. And I think that you, you, you kind of talked about that when you said how you grew up, how we grew up in that era. Um, our parents generally supported the teachers and the education, you know. Um, and same thing, you know, and, and Cardin, you're probably old enough that you got in trouble at school. The first question isn't, you know, why, why did they do that? It's right. yeah. what did you do wrong? You yeah, know, exactly. I mean, they're, they're going to they're gonna assume that the teacher was, was in the right. And as we've seen, obviously, in every you know profession, there's there's bad apples. There's people that probably shouldn't be there. Um, but I just in in again, I saw it on the coaching end of it as well. Um, a lot of times that the the parents want to place blame on somebody else instead of accountability with their own child, mm -hmm. um, and that's a tough one because it's a very personal issue, you know. 
It's very, uh, very tough. So, so Chuck, in your, in your school system, I mean, how, how do you guys deal with that? I mean, is there, is there kind of a protocol for dealing with parents in that situation? I mean, you, you obviously just, they need to be heard. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you, I mean, that's gotta be a tough, tough deal. Well, communicating with parents is, is very different now. Now it comes primarily, um, through, communication products, apps that the mm. staff use. We have a couple in the elementary that we use, um, Seesaw for the primary grades and, a, and an app called um, Remind for the older grades. And so a lot of that communication isn't the traditional communication. It's not a note home. It's not a phone call. It's a, it's a message is what mm. it is. And, and it actually seems to work very well. You know, mm. we've got good responses from families about that establishing communication. Um, still make phone calls, still send letters home and, and things like that. Um, me personally, when I want to talk to a parent, I like to call them on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just want, I want that. I, I don't text typically much, but that's, I'm just a little old school in that sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd rather, I'd yeah. rather talk on the phone. Um, but again, I, I don't, you know, from my perspective of principal, I don't have a lot of parent communication. I don't. Classroom teachers do. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of their realm. I communicate with parents when I need to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I say communicate, when I talk, because I see anytime I go anywhere, I see parents, whether yeah. I go to the store or go to the hardware store, Ace or wherever, yeah. I, I, it's that constant communication about kids and, and seeing kids out mm-hmm. and things like that. So there's that that communication stream, which we like to keep in a cohesive manner. I think that's one of the real pieces to, to creating that situation where we're on the same page as, as educators and as families, parents that, uh, is communicating what's going on, what's mm-hmm. happening. Uh, and that's kind of one, one positive that came from the distance learning and that is getting parents engaged in those products to, to, for communication purposes. I don't know if everyone's inbox looks like my inbox, but uh, if you, we just had to utilize <clears throat> um, email, it's it can be overwhelming on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so those products where it's like boom, it pops up, boom. And now, um, as far as engaging parents in the education, th- those same products are um, those same products are used to inform parents and for students to share their own learning really on a day-to-day basis with their families. Uh, we have primary teachers who post videos of students working on spelling words and spelling cool. skills and writing yeah. and reading. And, and, and actually the kids post it themselves. It, it's awesome. They even do it in a kindergarten. Uh, you know, there's things like that the uh youtube and and sharing on youtube what's going on in a classroom is great you know our concerts uh, you know we couldn't do typical concerts at christmas time and so mrs deppner had um was on top of things and got a concert recorded and got it out to families and things like that. And so the, you know, I, 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 I'm not a big technology person. It has its purpose. Um, but we found some positive productive ways to do that. Um, through, through this, the past, you know, year and a half or whatever it's been. Man, I think that is so important is modeling, how to use technology effectively because you had already kind of mentioned the internet and how vast and and wide it is but kind of modeling 
even sometimes I think to parents, like how these apps can be used efficiently and effectively, how they can be used in education, how they can be used to inform and how, you know, I, I think that there is a big push when I just got into teaching that was like on the brink, on the brink of like, how do we, how do we tame this beast type of thing? How do we, you know, use this monster? Is this technology, the iPhone, that thing, is it, are, are we going to leave everything in the lockers and nobody touches anything? And this is kind of what we do, or how do, do we try to um, kind of embrace it and use it in the classroom and things like that? And, and, and what always was funny to me is that, you, you know, it's not going anywhere. Exactly. Like you said, when these kids are out of school, they're right onto their phones. Um, so kind of locking them up during the day just didn't make any sense to me because it wasn't, it wasn't positive in reality. Right. But doing kind of exactly what you said, even from an early age, which is modeling how you can use technology for a greater purpose as I think is so important uh, in the classroom. Yeah. And how to be responsible, um, when you're using technology, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've, you know, like you, you you talked about, it was technology. This thing is wonderful. This thing is great. Well, I'm, I've kind of come back to the middle on that. And I need, there needs to be a balance in technology mm-hmm. um, usage. I, I don't think it's the answer to everything. I mean, I think it's a tool. And like I tell teachers, when it's the right tool, use it. Um, and I tell them that about whatever it is, whether if it's using technology or what, how to design a lesson, if it's the right tool, use it. And I, I just think there has to be a balance, you know, and you talked about phones and phone usage. We've had quite a bit of debate and we're actually going to, to lock those down a little bit um, more this year. I'd really like to see zero student phones at school. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the direction that we're going for the for all grades, it's not just a junior high, high school thing anymore. It's an elementary, junior high, and high school sure, thing. Sure. So um, the phone usage, I think it's just so many times when you see students, well, kids in a social situation, there's four or five of them sitting there and they're on their phones. And um, they're, they're, you, don't, you don't see a lot of that you know, face-to-face contact. Um, well, and I'd like to see more of that. It's a distraction. I mean, you, you can't convince me that... You know, just the thought of trying to educate and teach kids while they have a cell phone in their hand, forget it. I mean, it. there's too many things on there. I'm not saying, <clears throat> like what Cardin was saying, I'm, I'm not saying you, you can't find ways to try to utilize the phone in conjunction with, but I mean, they're not you know, they're on, they're on their apps or on TikTok. They're, you know, they're right. not with you. And that's the problem I think every parent has when you're trying to actually get through to your kids the first thing you got to do is put the phone down because if it's you against that phone, you're, you're not going to win. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah, I, I kind of, okay. So I'm torn on this a little bit and this is why, because I, I think that locking up the cell phones, I mean, I totally understand it, right? Because it, it kind of forces the interaction piece. It forces people not being able to touch it. Um, students not being able to touch in, in the classroom. I completely understand that. On the other hand, these kids are going to have the cell phone attached to them and much more for the entire rest of their life. Don't you think part of the, I shouldn't even say responsibility, but part of what we should be modeling is the fact that yes, you're, you're always going to have this thing on you and this is how you put it in front of you and don't touch it. I don't know. And you know, that's a, a great point. They are going to have it. And what, I mean, what's the future? Um, 
Right. Yeah. Just just think about the last ten years and the evolution of cell phones in ten years or twenty years. It's oh, it's crazy. And what's the future? I don't know. I just know that um, you know we, we talked about the demands of education. Now it's it's beyond the academic side of things. But part of the academic side of things is that digital citizen citizenship and doing doing the right thing when you're online. Um, me personally, the social media side of things, there's so many negatives that come for yeah. our kids from utilizing those and they, they become dependent on it. I'm kind of overgeneralizing here, um, but it, it's just there's a lot of negatives that come from that what's on the phone that um, it's, it's, I don't know, I, I would disagree in, in the fact that I think they need some time away from it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you give a, I bet you if you give an eight-year-old a phone, he could probably master it in a, a day or two, mm -hmm. learn everything he yeah. wanted to do on it yeah. and yeah. be fine on it. And you could take away from him for the next two years and give it back to him. He could step on it and probably be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one of those things. If you learn the basics of running a computer, you can do a lot of things on a computer and it's the same thing on the phone. So I, I don't think that um, having the students not have a phone in their pocket for, you know, seven hours during the school day is going to be detrimental on them. I, I actually believe it's going to be positive for them. Well, there there is no shortage of data now coming out that talks about the harmful effects of social media. And, right. yeah. and <clears throat> of course, most of what we see in social media, even though they won't admit, is geared towards kids younger, you know, 21 and younger. And it, it's just, they're a, a very influential group and they're easily influenced as a group. And that's where a lot of that is targeted. And, you know, you, you just as a person who, who, who sees this happening in our society, and I've read some of these studies and, and the things when they talk about the, the peer pressure type things and that go on. Um, I agree with you, Chuck. I, I don't, I don't think I, I think kids need to get away from that stuff for a while. And especially in an environment where you're trying to, you're trying to bring in education, you're trying to bring in academics, right? You know, and it, it makes me think back, I had a, a college professor and at the time, a lot of like in physics and stuff like that, they would not allow you to use a calculator in your tests, which is ridiculous, right? And, but this guy, he was one of the first guys that said, well, of course you can use a calculator. And matter of fact, he let us use a formula sheet. You could write down whatever formula you wanted and bring it in the test. He said, would you ever be expected in a real life situation to do a formula and do a calculation and not double check it? He said, why would I try to, you know, put, put a totally unrealistic scenario in, in order to try to test you? You know, he said that's not, nobody would do that, especially in a, in a situation where, you know, it could be life or death or whatever. But so obviously you're going to give people the tools they need in the academic setting that they would use in a real setting, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I think the phone, it kind of crosses that line. Yeah, I would agree. I don't know, and Cardin, you can correct me. I don't know how many people work on their phones. I'll be honest with you. That's pretty much what I do. I've got a, a, a phone that's been given to me um, through my workplace and between my, essentially between my phone and my computer, uh, I don't actually interact face to face with anybody. 
I'm on both of those all day long, pretty mm-hmm. much. But you know, but it's different because I'm doing phone calls. I'm not. I'm not looking at Facebook <laughs> on there, right? So there, you know, there's different, right? Well, not all the time, right? That's my that's my third phone he's, that I use. He's TikToking it. That's my he's third TikTok-ing. phone. TikToking. Yeah. But I'm telling you, even yeah, even not even. Uh, not even like managerial positions or anything like that. There are so many positions, at least in my line of work, that it, it is full-time um, remote where all you're doing is working on the computer and all you're doing is working on the phone. And and what worries me is that, um, and I'm sure you have the exact same thing, and I, I don't know how to tackle this. I'm just, you know, just saying that I think that this is an obstacle is, is as we're kind of educating the future kind of workforce um are are they gonna are 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 kids gonna be the new workers are they gonna be able to put down their phone at any given time and here's the other issue i have too is that we can take phones away from kids for the days that they're at school right but right when they get home their parents i I would bet in 50 percent of the households are sitting on their phones for the rest of the evening so the, I think be. there's there's just a there's just a disconnect there between like for me like how do we how do we educate um, kids to effectively use technology and know when the time is to put a phone down and to, when to pick it up and I agree in elementary school through junior high there's no way but in high school I mean some of these kids are going to have to be taught like you at this point the phone needs to go down because you know we have another task that is at hand and I'm worried that kids won't be able to go into the workforce and be able to do that I honestly don't think so I don't know well a lot of places they don't have a choice you're a lot of a lot of work situations you're not allowed to be on your phone you know and, well, and no, I, I, I well I completely agree but that's and, not going to stop kids when they have it in their pocket well, no, but what I'm saying is you, you, you I guess it seemed like you were kind of saying, well, what are these kids going to do when they get in the real world? Well, in the real world, they're not allowed to be on their phones. Well, that's so, what I'm saying. They're not going to make it. <laughs> that's what well, I mean. The, well, without, no, without, the, without I, I the, the skills and the tools to, to realize like, hey, this is something that I need to put down for. And, and maybe that's just something you learn as a part of maturity. I get that. But still, at the same time, I mean, I think it's. I think I, it's crazy how much yeah. um, time is spent on the phone. And I think also how many parents are doing the same thing. And I, I know that education takes on many different realms, but if nobody's there to advocate for like, yes, you do have a phone, but you can put it down, then it's going to be only get worse. Yeah. But I, but I think that was the point Chuck was making about getting away from the phones I mean, is, is, isn't that right, Chuck? Yes. I mean, yes. Okay. That, mm-hmm. So essentially that scenario you just laid out is pretty much what he was describing, why they try to get away from the phones in the classroom. Well, mm-hmm. I, I agree. But what I'm saying is that you can't get rid of it by taking away the, the temptation completely, right? It's very easy to stay off your phone if you tell people to lock it up, but that's not what it's going to be like in the workplace. They're not going to, your boss is not going to say, give me your phone when you get on the shift. I'm going to put it into a locker. Hmm. No, they're probably going to say, don't use your phone. And if you do use your phone, you probably won't be working here anymore. You're fired, right? Exactly. (laughs) Then they're going to be fired. Yeah. I I mean, I completely agree. I'm not saying that there's any answer. I just think it's, it's definitely, definitely a problem that is only going to get way worse. And as you know, Chuck, because you've seen it get progressively worse up to this point. Um, Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's going to get any better. Yeah. So, so Chuck, one question I had, 
<clears throat> and we're getting close to our one hour mark, but is with COVID, uh, obviously it was kind of the year for hell for a lot of, a lot of people and a lot of careers and stuff. Um, but one thing that happened with COVID is we, we, we all learned about essential workers, right? And wow, teachers are one of those essential workers, right? Yep. Um, essential workers defined by workers that no matter what, even in the middle of a, of a life-threatening pandemic, uh, they have to keep doing their job. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm going to fire it to you straight. Are teachers underpaid? Absolutely underpaid. <clears throat> yes, teachers are underpaid. They, it's it's um it's a difficult job every day. Oof. It is absolutely a difficult job every day, and um, I don't know what the answer is to it. Um, some states regulate salaries. Some you know Montana does not, so that there's a base. Um, the amount of money that comes from the the state and federal level, you have a, a pocket of money to work with, and and so you can base teacher salaries on that. Uh, and obviously if you pay teachers more, that pot of money doesn't grow. Mm -hmm. And so if you pay teachers more then other things have to sacrifice, whether it's non-certified staff, aides or paraprofessionals, uh, whether it's custodial staff, supplies, uh, things like that, all those things change because again, that pot of money is all based on the number of students in your school. And then how you choose to use that pot of money for salaries and salaries for teachers, for bus drivers, for non-certified staff, things like that. It all comes out of that pot. And and so in my opinion, the pot of money is just not big enough to do what we need to do. <clears throat> We've been fortunate enough. Well, one of the positive effects of the, the pandemic is uh, money from the federal government to help support it and from the state government. And uh, we, we spent a lot of money on sanitizing, safety mm -hmm. type products and stuff that we needed to be prepared. Um, and, and now the money that's coming in now is all, all designed to make up that lost learning. And um, the kind of interesting thing there, you, you know, you talk about teachers and, and the should they be paid more paid more absolutely and I, I thought they should have been paid more during the pandemic because of the amount of stuff they had to deal with absolutely. their job yeah. you know I talked about learning in a new situation you have to learn and that's what we put every staff member in where they were working literally six in the morning till 10 o'clock at night responding to emails doing this mm -hmm. uh, and and learning how to do this and learning how to record this and learning how to it was just crazy. And so the amount of time and effort that went into that by the staff, it was tremendous. And, um, but yet all that money, there was none for teachers. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That kind of essential yeah. worker stipend. I'm sure you heard about doctors yep. and nurses who are on the front lines oh, getting yeah. paid extra and, and, you know, for, or not. Yeah, or not. That wasn't all of them. I know. You heard about it. And <clears> saw, why don't they do that with teachers? I mean, especially teachers who took that, you know, you talk about essential worker and a frontline worker, that was them. You're, you're in a classroom with 15 to 20 bodies or 30 bodies, whatever it is, and you're doing your thing up there and uh, helping students learn and do this and that. And, and you're right. This, the safety of the the staff as a whole was second to the mm -hmm. the 
the needs of the children. Um, we as a community may, I mean, the school board and the community, we made a concerted effort that, you know what, when this school year started, the 2020-2021 school year started, we wanted kids in school. So right. we, we did what we needed to do to keep kids in school. And I can say proudly that we made it the entire year without having to close down the school because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Right. Uh, and to me, that was a great accomplishment um, for the school, but also I think it bodes well for our community and what they did to help us achieve that. Because if, like I talked to the school board about, you know, way back in August, a year ago, I said, this has to be a community effort. If we're going to do this, we have to do this. And we, and we were able to do that. Um, but again, I'm kind of getting off topic here and talking about the teachers and the important role they played. And I think it's almost comical with the ESSER 2 and ESSER 3 funds that come, you have to have an opening plan. Mm -hmm. We've been open. And it's and it's for because yeah, it's you, a you federal, didn't close. Well, it's a, well, we did in in you know March to to May oh, right, right. of last year, but then we opened and we had a reopening plan back then. But there's a lot of districts, and we're talking in the country now because right. it's a federal thing uh, to do a reopening plan. So our reopening plan was pretty easy because we had already done it. Right. Done. <laughs> yeah, it was it was done. We were back in session, and um, it, I, I feel fortunate that in a small town because a lot bigger schools had a tougher time getting back to in-person everyday learning. And I don't know if all of them did or not, mm -hmm. but a lot of the small schools were able to do what we did uh, and make it through. And like all of our schools in the county were able to get back to in-person learning um, as you know, and, and do the best you can under, under that situation. But I can't say enough about what the teachers in Shoto did during that closed, <laughs> the closed down time in March, April, May, right. and, and what they did for kids. And they really did everything they could to help kids learn and did the best in the situation because we were all thrown into something that we really didn't know. Uh, and, and the amount of time we had to prep for, <laughs> for that was crazy. It was just nuts. I can only imagine. Got a call we'll just, on us. Sunday night and and no school with kids on Monday. Yeah, it was like that. I was going to say just the amount of time and effort to learn how to all of a sudden switch everything to virtual. I mean, that's um, it is incredible muscle to do that. I mean, that is not an easy thing to do. And plus, find the right platform and do all the recordings and all that stuff. It, just, it had to have been just a massive amount of work. It, it was. The teachers put in a ton of time, a ton of time and effort to get that done. We did the best we could as administration uh, to try to give training what we could and arrange training. You know, and, and last summer, uh, we did quite a bit of training for staff on, on Google Classroom. That was kind of our platform of choice to spin off from for, I, I want to say, grades third grade through seniors in high school mm -hmm. was Google Classroom. And so that was a concerted effort to get as much training as possible in that and then follow-up training to ongoing dialogue, uh, Zoom meetings. Zoom, it's a whole new world. That's <laughs> so, yeah. something we all in education, Google Meet and Zoom. Um, yeah. <laughs> we all learned fairly quickly yeah. and, uh, yeah, it was crazy. Well, I, <clears throat> I just, when the statistics came out that out of the essential workers, you know, the group, and I think it was like 50 that they were ahead in this, this statistic, they were in the, in the lowest 10% of earnings. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yep. so essentially our most mm -hmm. important people and most important mm -hmm. careers are in the bottom 10% of pay scales. Yep. 
and that's sad. It is. It is. It absolutely is sad. Teachers are underpaid. Yes. Well, I'm a yeah. I'm a good case study for that too, because look, and this is exactly what I think is is wrong with funding in general and, and pay scales, right? So I I taught for four years, moved into basically um, defense, where I b- became an officer, and when I took the federal job as an officer, and I, I'm fine with saying this, I was I tripled my salary, and then I I, I kid you not, probably worked. 25% of the amount of time that I did when I was in the classroom because that the, it, it it's just it's constant constant work you know your the classroom is only half of it you know you have so much grading you have so much exactly like you said Chuck communication that goes on plus you want to be a member of the school and the community so you're trying to coach and you're trying to do all these other things and trying to make it to support the kids. So making it to concerts or making it to, you know, uh, plays that they were putting on or other sporting events just to support the the students that you have. It, it was pretty much constantly being involved with the school, which was great. I mean, it, honestly, the community aspect of it was amazing. And I, and I totally miss that. But I, I think that that is a, a good just example of what's wrong with the, the funding in general, right, uh, of where we're we're as a whole society where the bulk of our funds are going. Yep, I agree. And and that's why when I said earlier about males and teaching, they have to want to do it. You have to want to be a teacher because there's not a lot of money in it. Yeah. You have to love it. Well, some, you know, some states though actually are, are pretty good. The ones that can afford, I know Wyoming, Nevada, um, actually are good. And, and <clears throat> it seems to me as my brother-in-law taught in Nevada, he left Montana to teach there, and the main reason was their retirement was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So the the payoff there is you're not going to make a lot of money when you're teaching, but when you retire, you're going to make the you know a, a decent wage, a, a decent living mm-hmm. wage. Um, but no, it, it's it's one of those things that if you know like what Cardin was saying, all the hours you put in, it's it's like ranching and farming. You don't want to figure your hourly wage. You know, it's, right, it's right. depressing. Yeah, right. You know, you just you don't <laughs> yeah, do that. You exactly. don't you don't no, you no. don't get the calculator out and break it all no. down what you're making an hour because it it is it's depressing. So well, um that is our one hour mark, Chuck. Well that happened. I can I just do one last question to end on? absolutely. What I, I feel like I, I don't even think it was necessarily negative, but I do want you know, thirty one years of of educating, what do you still love about education? Absolutely. Good question. The kids. I mean, that's the best yeah. part. That's why I got into teaching. Uh, yeah. Seeing the kids every day. That's a, that's that's why I do what I do. Um, it's an well. It's it's kind of the nature of the beast. That as I've gone from teacher to principal to superintendent now, that the time I spend with kids has gone down. But I still find time in the day to to be with kids. Um, that's the best part of it. I still love that. Yeah. Well, I. I'm just going to say this because I, I, uh, I've known Chuck, like I said, since we've been here and he's, he's, he, and, and this is actually why I asked him to, to come on because I wanted to hear what he had to say and I value his opinion. Um, Chuck is a, you know, an extremely dedicated educator. And the, the biggest thing that I've known is I, I am a person that I consider myself very progressive. 
and Chuck is also that way. I mean, there's there's so many times he's told me about you know, new learning curriculums and new, you know, just, just things that are coming down the line that, that, that is trying to enhance the education experience, whether it is for the students or the, the administration or the teachers. Um, the guy is constantly learning and he's constantly trying to make things better. Um, and that doesn't happen. I mean, I think we all have uh, stories of teachers that were burned out that were probably way past that time, you know, that they weren't effective educators anymore. And what I've seen of Chuck is he is trying to do everything he can to prevent that from happening. He wants to keep educators being educators, but, but yet you have to, you have to have, you know, students and you have to have this education that is progressive and moving on. And I think you've done, just like I said, ever since I've known you, you've always pushed for that. Well, thank you, Blair. To me, it's like, you know, I love the kids and it's all about the kids. That's what our, that's what our job is. It's all kid based and our outcomes are students. Right. Uh, I hate to call them students because it sounds so impersonal. Um, but those, those young men and women and little kids and in elementary and then junior high and high school, it's all about them and outcomes for them. And that's what's really driven me for, for this long. Well, Thank you for your service, Chuck. Well, thank you, Blair. Yeah. And thanks, Garden. Yes. Okay. So now the now the uh, the turning point. Now Chuck is a he's a listener of Pondering Monkeys. So Garden, he knows what's coming up. You know what's coming, Chuck. Uh, this is the uh, the the monkey moment. And as you know, since you're a listener, is that we always ask our uh, our guests to uh, you know introduce the monkey moment with your best monkey imitation. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Yes, I know that can. you can. Come on, I know Chuck. that you can. I know that you can. I totally. But it can be any um, type of monkey. Doesn't matter. It can be any, any um, primate. Any primate. Any, any, any primate. Well, well, it's got to be. It's got to be geared towards the monkey. So <clears> I, know, <throat> I know where you're going with that. Oh boy! All right, let's hear it. Come on. Come on. Woo, woo, woo. Ah, ah, ah. Very good. Very good. That was um, really the, good. The that was really good. Very nice. We need to we need to do a cut where we get all of our monkey moments together. There's been just some spectacular monkeys. Actually, you, you that's a great there. idea. That's a great idea. We should just do a monkey moment collection. I think Blair, I think it's only fair if you ask the question because I think that when I was asking the questions, I was getting I was getting more votes on my side because I was I was uh, asking it in a very particular okay. way. All right. I'm just going to shoot it to you straight, Chuck. You are, you're out for a walk in the middle of the night and the lights come on up in the sky and here comes this flying saucer and it lands in front of you. The door opens up and an alien comes out and says to you, are you coming or are you staying? I'm probably staying. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a home kind of guy. <laughs> kind of a home body. I'm kind of uh, a home Would body. you come toward the universe? Not, uh, like uh, today? Like now? now? I'll <laughs> stay at home. I'm good. Oh, uh, you and Blair. You and Blair. <laughs> I got stuff I going on. Okay, so no, listen. So to help Cardin's side, I'm going to add yes. some caveats now. Please, he's a, thank he's you. A, he's a friendly alien. I'm Super still not going. Okay. No. I'm still not going. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's not. Uh, yeah. See, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm that way too, Chuck. I'm not going to just, I need proof. I need a little validation that, you know, he says he is what he is. And, <laughs> he's friendly. Know. Okay. Just yeah. take his word for it. He's a nice, friendly, local alien. What else uh, do you want from him? Come on. Chuck, are you interested in UFOs at all? Does that topic interest you? A little all? bit. Not much. Okay. Cardin and I are kind of hung up on it. It's kind of an interesting. I, I think you did an episode on that, didn't you? We did. Yes, we, we actually, did. I think we've, I think we've worked UFOs in about every episode. <laughs> yeah, with the monkey moment, we we certainly have. Yeah, we definitely have. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's good. But yeah, that's okay, Chuck. You and I will just stay home. We'll just yep. throw a shrimp on the Barbie and just just relax while Cardin in the in the, in the group. <laughs> yes. Take a tour of the universe. Yeah, exactly. So many ins and outs of the universe. But you guys just kick your feet up. Just relax. That's right. Just relax. Just relax. Well, I uh, uh, well, I want to thank you, Chuck, for coming on. I was Good. actually, <clears throat> like I said, this 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 really kind of happened spontaneously, and I'm really glad you agreed to come on and, and talk because you you like I said, 31 years that speaks for itself. So thanks very much for taking the time and and sharing your experience with us. You're welcome, Carden. Blair. Episode 32 in the books. That's a wrap. All right, buddy. Well, until next week, Carden, I, uh, I, I actually, next week, I'll be very excited to hear how the pop-up camper excursion oh, man. Yeah, goes, I'm buddy. so excited. I can still, honestly, the little kids are still scampering around above me. I'm <laughs> excited to go to sleep. So it's going to be, <laughs> it'll be so, an adventure. That it'll is so adventure. awesome at that age when <laughs> something like going camping, just like, you know, yeah. it's just, that is Dad, so Dad, awesome. Are, uh, are we gonna get? Are we gonna bring wood? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How about what about marshmallows? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what. That's what was going on. Right. And making so. a list and checking it twice. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, yeah. well, good on you and Jennifer. You know, I mean, that's just that's awesome. Taking the time in those moments that they're, they're just they're so important. And we're we're actually going through the same thing now with grandkids. Yeah, we've oh, got, awesome. We've got a couple of grandkids. So yeah, there and we go. got Nikki, uh, my wife. Uh, made me go out and buy a little camper so we can nice because <laughs> the memories i had with my own kids wasn't good enough so now it wasn't enough camping 2.0 there you go uh. <laughs> uh all right well anyway uh once again thanks chuck and carton uh we'll talk again next week all right good sounds good good night <laughs>